uh, as we come to our passage today, I don't think that uh, actually Paul ever read the book of Acts that Luke wrote. But if he did, I can imagine him like being a little bit insulted as he comes to the first couple verses in Acts uh, chapter 20, because there's like no detail there at all. Uh, and I can imagine him saying something like, uh, Luke, I think you missed a few details. I've been really, really busy doing tons of stuff, uh, and yet you didn't really say too much about it. And so uh, we're going to see in these first few verses that uh, even though uh, Luke was very brief, uh, Paul was very busy. And so we're going to spend the first uh, 10 minutes or so of this message just kind of filling in the gaps of what is missing here uh, in Paul's mess- in uh, Luke's message. Now remember, as we come now, we're, we're in the third missionary journey. And in this third missionary journey, Paul has been in Ephesus for quite a while. Uh, three years, in fact, he's been there. Uh, and so... Uh, even though he was there, he never stopped being concerned about the other churches that he uh, had been a part of in the past. And we see that uh, in his concern for Jerusalem. He was very eager uh, to get this offering that he wanted to collect and bring that back to Jerusalem. And he was also very concerned for this church in Corinth. And uh, we'll see that he wrote them at least four letters uh, during his time in Ephesus and the time period that we're going to cover today. And he visited them at least three times. Uh, And so Luke is just incredibly brief in terms of the number uh, of words that he uses uh, to describe Paul's ministry in verses 1 through 3. Now, uh, it may be that that Luke just didn't have that information available to him uh, at this point in time. He didn't have a complete record of what Paul had been doing. And and that's why a lot of scholars think that... um, that Luke actually didn't have Paul's letters when he wrote the book of Acts because there's such scant detail, particularly in this section, but in others as well. Uh, Luke rejoined Paul in verse 5, uh, as we'll see when we get to that. And when we get there, we'll see that now all of a sudden Luke is providing a whole lot more detail about what was going on in Paul's ministry. Uh, and so from that point forward, we're going to find that Luke is present with him, and so he's able to give him a whole lot more uh, information. But in these early Uh, verses of Acts chapter 20. We're kind of left to piece together uh, what Paul was doing from his other letters, uh, particularly uh, the letters to the Corinthians uh, and to uh, the Romans. So uh, I've given you a uh, slide or a a handout in your uh, bulletin this week because uh, we're going to be running through some of Paul's travels uh, and it's kind of hard to follow. So I wanted you to have it in your own hands, even though it's going to be up there on the screen Uh, as well uh, when necessary. So uh, pull that out and we'll start getting into that. Uh, The first thing we see is is Paul visited Ephesus, and we saw that on the second missionary journey. That happened in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 19. We we just covered that. He spent about 18 months uh, in Corinth there, Uh, but then when he left there, he went back to Jerusalem, and that was the end of the second missionary journey. Uh, But no sooner did the second missionary journey uh, end than the third missionary journey began. And and so Paul found himself back in Ephesus again, and he was there at this point in time for about three years. Now, sometime, uh, whether he was in Ephesus uh, at the time or uh, just on the third missionary journey, either on the way to Ephesus or or while in Ephesus, he wrote uh, a letter to the Corinthians. And it is not 1 Corinthians. It is a letter that uh, scholars call Corinthians A because uh, it preceded 1 Corinthians. Uh, It's actually called the previous letter. And it's called the previous letter because of what Paul wrote in Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 
verse 9. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul is referencing in 1 Corinthians a previous letter that he had written to the Corinthians. Now, that previous letter has been lost. We don't have it anymore, but we know that it existed. And we kind of know the content of what it said from 1 Corinthians because Paul was actually responding to some concerns that the Corinthians uh, had raised. Uh, We know that there were reports of division in the church because Paul talked about that in chapter 1 and chapter 11. We know about this sexually immoral situation from chapter 5. And we know from chapter 7, Paul started that chapter by saying, now about the things that you wrote to me about, and then he went on to answer their questions that they had uh, asked him uh, in that particular letter. So, Uh, We also know from 1 Corinthians that he had uh, sent Timothy at some point uh, after that letter was delivered, and he wanted Timothy to check in with the Corinthians to to see how they were doing and then bring back a report uh, to Paul uh, so that Paul would know how that letter uh, was received. And we don't have Timothy's uh, report, but it seems that the report must not have been too good because while Paul was in Ephesus, he interrupted uh, his ministry in Ephesus to take a short trip over to Corinth. And so uh, let me show you on the map. He was in Ephesus and he (laughs) took a short jaunt over to Corinth, which is right over here. And then he returned back to Ephesus at a particular point in time. This is pretty fun. uh, At a particular point in time to to go back there to Ephesus. But he went to Corinth for a particular reason. and, And we think that even though the book of Acts doesn't record it, he must have gone on this trip over to uh, 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 Corinth. And so uh, he later uh, called that visit, he called that the painful visit. Uh, We see that about two-thirds of the way down uh, your slide. And it's called the painful visit because of what we see in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, referencing this painful visit that he had just made. And then when he returned to Ephesus, then he wrote a third letter to the Corinthians. Again, a letter that we don't have. This is called Corinthians C by scholars. uh, And it's called the severe letter because of what Paul wrote in that letter. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he said, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So he's, uh, it's called the severe letter because he had to be severe with them in certain places. And then Paul gave that letter to Titus and Titus was the one who actually delivered that letter Uh, to Corinth while Paul was still in Ephesus. Now, I tell you all of that background because I want you to know what's going on as Paul is beginning his journeys here on chapter 20. It fills in a lot of gaps, and and Paul was busier than a stay-at-home mom, uh, even though Luke doesn't record very much of it. And I want us to know what's on Paul's mind because Paul's heart is heavy. He's written this severe letter now Uh, to the Corinthians. It's his third letter. He's very concerned about them. And as he's leaving Ephesus, he is really eager to know what's going on in Corinth. And that kind of uh, informs how we ought to be looking at these uh, first few verses in Acts chapter 20. So as we come to our passage, let's just take a look at uh, verses 1 and 2. 
And uh, what we will see is that uh, we, he, we're, we're talking about the thing that happened after the uproar. Remember last week we were talking about the uproar that Demetrius caused, uh, the riot that happened because uh, their, their goddess Diana and their temple Ephesus they thought was being uh, devalued by Paul. Uh, so that was the uproar. But what we get here in verse 1 is that uh, Paul left Ephesus and went to Macedonia. That's all it reports there. But if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Remember, he's looking for Titus to see how that uh, letter was received. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul was eagerly seeking Titus because he wanted to know what was going on in Corinth. How was that letter received? How are my people in that church doing there? Uh, and when he didn't find Titus at Troas, then he moved on to Macedonia. Uh, but Acts skips over that. It just says that he went from Ephesus to Macedonia. Well, thankfully, uh, Paul met Titus in Macedonia. Uh, and he felt encouraged there because Titus gave him great news in Macedonia. And so he wrote a fourth letter to the Corinthian church. And this is the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. And that was written from Macedonia in AD 56. Uh, and he references the severe letter in 2 Corinthians. He wrote this, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while." As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So, great news. The severe letter was successful. It accomplished the purposes that Paul set out for it. It's like when you have to discipline your kids. It's never fun. It's never comfortable to discipline your kids, but we do it because we know it's for their own benefit. And that was what the severe letter was about. And Paul was rejoicing that, second, or that, that the severe letter had its desired effect. And so he wrote them, uh, 2 Corinthians. Well, after that good news, Paul said in 2 Corinthians that he was planning to make a third trip to them, and this was going to be a happy trip, not a, another painful trip. And he says, I hear for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. So he wanted to do that, but before he did that, he was in Macedonia, and he was probably in Macedonia for at least a year, because as you'll remember, on the second missionary journey, he founded these churches uh, in Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. And so he spent a lot of time uh, with those folks in those churches. And then in Romans 15, 19, when he wrote that letter, he said this, By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So uh, scholars think that the only time that Paul ever could have gone as far as Illyricum was at this time. And if we look at the map, uh, Illyricum is hiding up here in the corner. There's a road here called the Ignatian Way, and you take that up to Illyricum, and that was the furthest west that Paul made it until he went on to Rome uh, after he was arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, so this can, only, can be the only time that Paul uh, ever got there. But Luke gives all of this such short shrift. He just says in verse 2, when he had gone through those districts, which means uh, all through Macedonia, looking at Berea and Philippi uh, and Thessalonica and to Illyricum, uh, he just sums that up in half a verse. 
Then he says he went to Greece, verse 3, and he stayed there for three months. And that would have included uh, this visit to Corinth that he was talking about here that he wanted to make uh, in 2 Corinthians. And so uh, as we look at this chart, that was a whole ton of information. But what we see there, and the reason why I'm telling you this, is that Paul went there three different times. And he wrote them four different letters. And what we learn from this is how dear these Corinthians were to Paul. He was so concerned from them, for them that he really wanted to go out of his way uh, to make them understand the gospel and so that they would believe. And that ought to be a lesson to us about how intense and how uh, much we need to persevere uh, in giving the gospel, especially to people who are having a hard time understanding it. Well, Paul probably stayed that winter in Corinth, uh, waiting for the weather to break so he could sail back to Jerusalem with that offering. Uh, and then while he was in Corinth, though, during that period of time, that's when he wrote the book of Romans. So you can see that Paul is constantly busy. He's constantly ministering. Uh, and while he's uh, there, he's trying to get a ship back to uh, Jerusalem, headed for Syria. But then verse 3 tells us that a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria. And so it's not hard to imagine when you think about it, a group of zealous Jews who are heading back to Jerusalem. They're trying to get there in time for the Passover. And, and now they encounter this, this teacher who uh, says he's a Jew, but now he says he's a Christian and he teaches against the law. And that you could imagine a bunch of passionate guys who were there heading back to Jerusalem who would think nothing of killing him and tossing him over uh, into the sea. And so as, as Paul got wind of that, he thought, well, I, I'm not going to go back by boat because I'm going to be killed. I have to go back by land now. Uh, and so that's what he was going to have to do. So he was not going to be able to make uh, Jerusalem for Passover, but he was still hoping to get there for Pentecost. And that would be 50 days later. So verse 4 tells us that he went back overland uh, through Macedonia. Instead of taking a boat from Corinth all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, he had to go back over the land and then catch a boat from here. So that took a whole lot more time. Uh, he had some very interesting people with him. Uh, and these men show that Paul had been very fruitful on his previous missionary journeys. As we look at these names, uh, he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea. Uh, and uh, Berea is in Macedonia. That was uh, evangelized on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, Aristarchus and Secundus were also from Macedonia. Trophimus, Tychicus, uh, Tychicus and Timothy were from Asia. Uh, that's in Ephesus where he was on his second and third missionary journey. And Gaius was from Derby, where he was on his first missionary journey. So we see all the fruits uh, of Paul's missionary journeys now with him at this one time. Uh, John Stott said that they were the fruits of the mission, and then they became agents of the mission. And they went from being unbelievers to converts and then to missionaries. And that's a pattern that our own lives should follow as well. God does not want us to hoard our blessings. The blessing of salvation is the greatest blessing uh, that we could ever receive, and, and he doesn't want us to hoard it to ourselves. Remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, I will bless you 
And then through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed because God doesn't want us to hoard our blessings. He wants us to share our blessings. And that's really what being a missionary is. It's just sharing your blessings, whether you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether you're sharing food, whether you're sharing money, uh, you're out there uh, living a life that Christ would be pleased with and hoping for an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Uh, That's what being a missionary is. Uh, Paul preached the gospel wherever he was. And he planned to go back to Jerusalem to bring them uh, this love offering that he had. Uh, So you can be a missionary in the neighborhood where you are preaching the gospel, or you can go all the way around the world like Paul did if you want to. But you don't have to go to the other side of the world. We can be missionaries in our own neighborhood, ministering to our neighbors, to our friends, our family, our coworkers. So uh, let's just remember that and get busy about being a missionary uh, in the world wherever we find ourselves. That's what God wants from us. Well, as we come to verse 5, it seems like uh, these men uh, that Paul had with him separated from Paul and Luke at this point in time. Uh, Paul had apparently picked up Luke uh, in Philippi. You'll remember that uh, the last time we saw Luke was in Philippi back in chapter 16. Luke was probably from Philippi. And so now as he comes back around through Philippi, uh, he picks up Luke again. Uh, And another of the we sections begins here where we see... uh, Timothy, or I'm sorry, Luke writing in the first person, uh, we, meaning uh, Paul and I, uh, were traveling about together. Uh, And so Paul stayed in Philippi uh, for uh, the Passover, and then he joined the rest in Troas after that. If we look at the map again, uh, we see that this doesn't look like a very long trip across the Aegean Sea, but it took them five days to get across that. Uh, Whereas in chapter 16, it took them only two days to go in the other direction. So the headwinds must have been very strong against them. It must have been a very difficult trip. And then as they uh, came into Troas, it took them five days to get there. And then they had to stay there for seven more days. So apparently they had to wait for a ship uh, while they were there before they could get going on their journey back to Jerusalem. Well, now, finally, at this point, uh, Luke is going to slow down the narrative. He's going to stop covering so much territory in two verses, and he's going to give us like a picture, a snapshot of what a a church service looked like in the first century. And we're very grateful for it because we can see so much in our own church services from what we see uh, in this church service uh, at Troas. Uh, So let's look at the snapshot of an early church. The first thing we're going to see is that it happened on Sunday on the first day of the week. And so on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, the first day of the week is Sunday. It's not the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And this is one of the earliest references we have to Christians worshiping on the first day of the week, on Sunday. Now, it may have been that for a period of time, they continued to worship and observe the Sabbath, but over a period of time, a Sunday came to displace Saturday completely because Jesus was raised from the dead on, on a Sunday and the Holy Spirit was given on a Sunday. So that became known as the Lord's Day, Sunday. We also see that they had supper. That's the Lord's Supper. They gathered together to break bread. And we should notice that this is a gathering of the Lord's people specifically for the purpose of having fellowship together and enjoying the Lord's Supper and worshiping together. They were doing just what the Lord told them to do. They were sharing a meal together and they were worshiping the Lord together. We also see that there was a sermon. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. 
so Paul had a lot to tell these people at Troas, and he, he thought perhaps he might never see them again. And so he wanted to continue to speaking to them uh, all the way up until midnight. And when you speak to anybody for that long, oftentimes that's going to result in a fourth thing that we often see in church, and that's sleep. And I know who you are. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sunday was a regular work day in that society. Many of the people in Troas uh, and, and in the Roman Empire, in fact, were slaves. And so they had worked a full day. They weren't free to attend worship service until after the work day was over. And then they could come to this evening service. Luke adds that they were in this upper room where there were many lamps. So lamps are fire torches. Uh, ventilation is bad. Fire torches tend to suck oxygen out of the room and make the room kind of hot. And so you can imagine that it's a stuffy situation uh, in, this, in this room. And so we come across this young man named Eutychus. Uh, the text tells us he's a young man. The Greek word for young man is paeus, which means a lad of about 8 to 14 years old. So uh, some of you people fit into that category, and you know what it's like to listen to a long-winded preacher and how hard that may be. Uh, so... He's sitting there. He's trying desperately to stay awake. He's worked extremely hard all day. He's listening to this long-winded preacher uh, in a room that has very little oxygen and that's hot. And he's, he's just drifting off to sleep. So he probably gets up and he wanders over to the window looking to get some fresh air so he can keep his eyes open. Just like you and I, when we're getting sleepy at the wheel, we might roll down our car window hoping for some fresh air. Uh, and then, unfortunately, he succumbed to deep sleep. And then once asleep, he tumbles right out of this third floor window and crashes to the ground dead, which is, would be funny uh, because Paul was able to bring him back to life. Not so funny if he didn't. Uh, but there's a lesson here, and that is if you're going to fall asleep in church, don't do it next to an open third floor window. <laughs> so you folks, you're all in good shape here. You can fall asleep safely. Uh, so immediately Paul runs outside and he falls down upon Eutychus just like uh, we see Elisha and Elijah do back in the Old Testament and restores life to this young man. Uh, and so what a, what a blessing uh, to him. Uh, I didn't say earlier that Eutychus actually means lucky. Uh, and so he was unlucky that he fell to his death, but he was very lucky that a God-anointed man was there to restore life uh, to Eutychus. And so what a blessing that was. And, you know, Paul... Uh, he was not going to be deterred by a small little thing like some kid falling out a window and then dying and then raising him back to life again. He had a sermon to preach. So he goes right back in and continues that sermon, preaches it all the way until daybreak. Uh, I don't know how much there is to say, but there must have been a lot to say. Uh, Paul was talking to them for hours uh, and hours, and uh, his authority to speak was authenticated by his ability to raise Eutychus from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we think about that first century church service, uh, I wonder if you think, uh, you know, why do we do some of the things that we do here uh, at Grace Redeemer Community Church? Faithful churches don't just make up their order of service, right? We're following a pattern that we see in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus sang a hymn uh, at the, before he went to the Mount of Olives at the Last Supper with his disciples. And David sang hymns. And, and so we worship the Lord in song. That's why we sing songs to the Lord. Jesus told them to gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we see them doing that in this first century church. Uh, the Bible says to proclaim the Lord's death and his resurrection until he comes. We preach the word because that's what they were doing in the first century. 
when we preach a sermon, it doesn't have to be a 12-hour sermon, but it has to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so that's what we do uh, every week here. And we proclaim that from the scriptures because that's what the apostles did. So I am never going to take as my text some op-ed piece from the New York Times, right? Uh, I'm going to preach from the scriptures because that's what they did in the first century. In fact, uh, Paul said in 1 Timothy, he said, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So that's what we do. We imitate everything that we see in the first century church. We worship together on Sunday, uh, though we can do it any day. Uh, we share the Lord's Supper weekly. We worship through music. Uh, we preach the word until he comes. The only thing we try not to do is to sleep during service. And, and, and that happens sometimes. And uh, I can tell you personally, I admit it, I have fallen asleep in church when others have been speaking. And so they fell asleep uh, when Paul preached. So I'm not going to be offended if you fall asleep when I preach. Uh, but the one thing I want us to be sure of is that we are not asleep spiritually. And that's the thing we really have to be careful of, uh, even though we might be physically tired. A spiritual sleep exists in unbelievers, of course, right? They are in a, a blind stupor. They don't even know that they're lost. They don't even know that they're spiritually asleep, uh, but they are. And so we need to help those folks. Uh, but spiritual sleep can come on believers even when we start to believe uh, some of the devil's lies. And this can happen in many ways. Uh, he convinces us uh, that we uh, can rationalize our sin uh, so that perhaps God doesn't even mind it. Uh, he convinces us that God has withheld his best from us, so we have to go out and, and do what God has said we ought not to do. Uh, even long-time Christians can be lulled into a sense of spiritual sleep because all of this becomes so familiar to us, right? After a while, uh, we know the scriptures. We've heard that story before. We just sang that song two weeks ago in church. The pastor just used that illustration a month ago. Uh, we do the Lord's Supper every week. Everything can become so rote, uh, if we're not too careful, right? And those are some of the complaints that we have about, uh, about what we do in church. But, but when those things creep into our head, that's, that's Satan using these tools to, to dissuade us from coming with a heart full of worship and, and to get us uh, grumbling against what we do. And, and he wants us not to truly worship God. We have to remember, worship is a discipline and so we have to repent of our sin. We have to stop treating uh, what is sacred as though it's familiar. And we have to come with hearts every week, fully prepared uh, to worship God and to see what God has for us that's new this week. So this week, uh, we're going to take a second right here to focus on who God is and who it is that we're coming to worship uh, each week. Uh, we're supposed to do this at the table, and we're going to do that at the table this week. Uh, but right now, just to change things up a bit, let's just think about this. The creator of the universe, uh, the one who made the stars and the galaxies too numerous to mention at distances that our minds cannot possibly comprehend. Uh, this gigantic God sent his son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for sin that you and I deserve because we are openly hostile against our creator. And he who has the power to kill us instantly instead sent his son to die on a cross so that we might live instead. Uh, Romans 5.8 puts it like this, for while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. I just want you to bow your heads for a few seconds and think about that before we move on.
It truly is a staggering thought uh, when you think about it, what the creator of the universe has done for us. Well, uh, we're going to now cover the last section of this uh, passage, and this is Paul's arrival at Miletus. Uh, Paul was planning a speech to the elders of Ephesus, and he planned to give that speech in Miletus. So the next few verses that we see here are just kind of a summary of Paul's travelings to get back to uh, Miletus. And so the first thing he did was he sent the others ahead by boat uh, to the first stop in Assos. I don't know how well you can see this, but Assos is like a triangular piece of land here, and the boat would have to go around this point and then land at this port in Assos. Paul was able just to walk right across it. It's actually a shorter walk than it is a boat ride, and, and we don't really know why Paul decided to do this. It may be that he wanted to spend a little more time in uh, uh, Troas to see how Eutychus was doing, or perhaps he wanted to have some time alone so he could think about what he wanted to say to these Ephesian elders. Uh, we really don't know. Uh, but once he reached Azos, then they sailed together uh, from that point. Uh, they reached at Azos, and then they sailed uh, together to uh, Mytilene here, then they sailed on to Chios, which happens to be the birthplace of the poet Homer. Then they sailed on to Samos, which happens to be the birthplace of the famous mathematician Pythagoras. And then they sailed to Miletus. And you can see that Miletus is just a couple miles here from Ephesus, which is why I'm calling this uh, message from Ephesus. Uh, and back again, all of that in those few verses, Paul covered all of that ground. Well, verse 16 says, <clears throat> that Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from the day of Passover, he had 50 days to get to, to uh, Jerusalem for, for Pentecost. That's how long the, the gap is in time from Passover to Pentecost is 50 days. And he'd already spent 24 of those days, seven days for the Passover feast in Philippi, and then five days for the trip to Troas, seven days in Troas, and one day each for the trips to Azos, Mytilene, Chios, Samos, and now here in Miletus. So half of his time is already gone, and he knew that if he went to Ephesus, there was no way that he was going to be able to make it to Jerusalem for, uh, uh, for Pentecost because of all of the friends that he had there and all the people that he would have to visit, and perhaps he might even be detained by his enemies too. So rather than go there to Ephesus, he called the Ephesian elders to himself uh, to give them some final instructions before departing uh, to Caesarea and then to, to Jerusalem. And we'll look at that speech uh, to those Ephesian elders next week. But for now, I want us to think about some applications that we can learn from this passage about Paul just traveling all over the place uh, and having it covered in such short order by Luke. And the first thing I want us to see is that we need to have a burden for those that we love. You know, Paul felt an enormous responsibility uh, for these people uh, who he spoke the gospel to. Uh, these Corinthians, they continued to get it wrong. They were confused. They were acting immorally. They were, some were following Paul. Some were following Apollos. They weren't following Christ properly. And Paul had such a burden for these people. He wanted to correct their error. And, and that required three trips uh, to Corinth. It required four letters to Corinth that we know about. Uh, and he had to get there from all over the world. And travel in those days was really hard. It wasn't as easy as travel is uh, today. And so that's why I took the time to run through all those stops and letters that Paul made, because I want you to understand uh, how hard it was for Paul to get there and what a burden Paul had for these people in Corinth and, and encourage us to have the same kind of burden 
Uh, his ministry was full of conflict. There was nothing easy about it, not only in Corinth, but all over the world. And so I want us to be burdened, just like Paul was, with the lost estate of people that he cared about so much. Uh, I have lost people in my family and in my friend group, and I know uh, that you do too. So I want us just to pause for a second to think of at least one unbeliever in our lives and, and ask yourselves this question, what lengths are you willing to go to to see that person be saved? And I want to challenge you and me this week uh, to speak to one of those people that might pop into your head, an unbeliever, and think about how you're going to uh, speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And I pray that you'll do that this week, and I pray that I will do it as well. And here's the second thing. Uh, that I want us to know this week, and that is that church is an opportunity and not an obligation. You know, when I was a kid, I never wanted to go to church. Uh, it was just something we had to do on Sunday morning. That was the rule in our house. Uh, but when I was old enough to go to church by myself, uh, I used to say I was going to church a lot of the time, but then most of the time I didn't. Uh, and then when I went to college, I just gave up altogether. There was no more church after that. Um, I just... I needed Jesus to get a hold of my life, right? And, and when Jesus finally did get a hold of my life, it took years, but once he did, I saw church completely differently. And I realized what a fool I was. And now I understand the church is an opportunity for us to gather together uh, and for me to be with you and for us to all celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, and, and when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating his death and his resurrection and the fact that we have eternal life because of what he's done. And so I don't see church as an obligation, even though now it's my job to be here and to preach the word to you. Uh, I love being here. And so I wake up really early on Sunday mornings. I'm so excited to, to come here and spend time with you and preach the word uh, to you and worship with you. And, and what a gift it is to, to be able to have the freedom to assemble together in this country uh, and worship and that we have the word of God in our own language. What a blessing that is. God doesn't want us to come to church because we have to. He wants us to come because we want to, and we want to glorify and magnify the name of, Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus. And, you know, Eutychus fell asleep, but so what? He was in church. He was doing what God wanted him to do. He was there magnifying uh, the name of the Lord in difficult conditions, no air conditioning, plumbing, uh, air circulating, a long-winded preacher, a hot room, but he was there, and he was doing his best, and that's what we need to do too. Uh, you know, the early church, they risked their lives to be together. They could be killed if they were caught in church in some locations, but they thought that it was worth it because they wanted that opportunity to be together, uh, even though they could be killed if they were caught. And so I pray that, that we see church the same way, that we love the Lord enough to see church uh, this way. A church is where we come to hear the creator of the universe speak to us through his word. And it's where we hear the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And it's where we find hope and encouragement and where we come and pray for each other and uh, try to overcome whatever mountain we have in our way. And I pray that we all uh, feel the same way about the awesome opportunity that it is to gather together uh, to worship our Lord. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the blessing it is to be able to come together and worship. The freedom that we enjoy in this country is not enjoyed uh, throughout the rest of the world. Lord, we thank you for that blessing. We thank you for the Bible in our own language. Lord, your word that we can understand. Incredible how you've preserved it over the, over the millennia. 
Lord, we thank you for it. And Lord, I just uh, pray that you would help us to reach the people that you would have us to reach like Paul did. Give us a burden for the people who are lost. Help us to know who they are. Give us the courage to speak to them. I pray that you work on their hearts, Lord, so that they are prepared to hear the gospel that we have to bring, Lord. It's good news that the world needs to hear. And I pray that they will be receptive to it, Lord. May your Holy Spirit work in them. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord. Amen.